You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. It is a pleasure to be before you today, and I pray that my preaching this morning will be an instrument, a means of grace, whereby you can come to know how great, how wonderful, how beautiful God is, and especially in his grace, which sets the captives free. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, real liberty indeed. As someone who has taught philosophy and religion on the undergraduate level for over a decade before I came to Asbury Theological Seminary, I have reflected on the intellectual currents of Western civilization and how they have played out in American university education. Of special interest, of course, is the model of Christian liberal arts education and what place the genius of the Christian faith has in this larger context of human knowledge. Like anything else, this entire enterprise has a history, and this story has been ably told by the American evangelical historian George Marsden in his very readable work the secularization of the academy. Secularization, Marsden warns us, comes not in one, but in two principal forms. The first, ideological secularization, is the one with which we are all familiar. This comes in the practices of the newly minted PhD in whatever discipline, who has decided that her call in life has now become to deconstruct the Baptist or the Methodist God of her 18-year-old freshman students. Since knowledge is, after all, power, as Sir Francis Bacon is reputed to have said, then all of this looks far too much like intellectual bullying and much less like the fair-minded critical thinking that we have a right to expect in the academy. The second form of secularism that Marsden refers to, and the one that I believe is actually far more consequential, is methodological secularism. It comes in the wake of spinning out discipline after discipline in the academy, such that the center has now been lost. It no longer holds. In the 19th century in this country, by way of contrast, Christ was at the center of many of the colleges that were founded. And several of these institutions, interestingly enough, were Methodist. 
Now, in order to give concrete and formal expression to the centrality of Christ, the president of the school, for instance, would often teach the capstone course of the college career, usually a senior course in moral philosophy. However, those days are long gone. For many colleges and universities, as Marsden notes, due to both ideological and methodological secularism, it's been a double blow. When we look at the intellectual capital of the church, however, especially in terms of her leading theologians, we readily see that the extent of human knowledge is not exhausted with the operations of reason, whether in terms of empiricism or rationalism, but that revelation is also necessary in order to give full expression to all that we know to be true, both about ourselves and about the larger world in which we live. Whether we are reading the theology of Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, or that of John Wesley in the 18th century, both leaders have acknowledged the necessity of both revelation and reason, never one without the other. And when both of these Christian leaders looked out on the landscapes of Europe in their respective ages, they saw not simply nature, though they did of course see that, but creation as well. Perspective is important. Just as the gifts of reason are numerous and have led to the advance of human civilization and betterment, as John Wesley acknowledged in his treatise, An Earnest Appeal to Men of Reason and Religion, so too are the gifts of revelation considerable and necessary for human flourishing. Much truth comes to us from scripture that has cash value as we live out our lives confronted with the existential realities of guilt and the threats of meaninglessness and death, elements that Paul Tillich considered in his own theology, especially in his important book, The Courage to Be. On the one hand, to fail to acknowledge the full gifts of reason in ongoing cultural progress results in some form of fundamentalism, and it's always a stifling enterprise. On the other hand, to fail to acknowledge the gifts of revelation of scripture results in a dimmed down existence as William James might have described it, and in rampant reductionism, especially when we consider precisely what a human being is. If Feuerbach in the 19th century had claimed that all theology is anthropology, simply the projection of very human characteristics onto the screen of eternity, then perhaps we can offer a suitable corrective today and maintain that all anthropology, apart from theology, 
is a vast project of emptying out. In other words, it is a diminishment of who we are, a sweeping reduction of what it means to be a human being. In a slightly different way, C.S. Lewis himself considered such matters in his own day in his celebrated book, The Abolition of Man. In short, we cannot properly consider what a human being is apart from God. In the recent past, the church has often neglected many of the great intellectual challenges of the day, especially at the turn of the 20th century, and has retreated into the more familiar territory of reducing the broad expanse of the Christian faith simply to personal and social ethics, which can often mean someone's particular politics, or of focusing on Christ exclusively as a redeemer. In other words, as the one for us, where the doctrine of salvation rules the day. But what of Christ's significant role, as the Apostle Paul has reminded us, in terms of both creation and nature. Indeed, exploring the several ways in which the things that have been made find both their source and their purpose in the Logos who has been made flesh is a way to take up the conversation once more, in which both reason and revelation will find their rightful places. To that end, I offer a consideration of our text this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, in which the Apostle Paul offers the elements of a hymn artfully constructed in praise of the role of Christ with respect to all creation and to any natural order discerned by reason. The Apostle then continues this song into Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, in which he celebrates the glory of Christ in relation to all humanity in particular, to the church, which is his body. The author of the book of Hebrews expresses this same truth, but in a slightly different fashion. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I especially like how the late F.F. Bruce saw a connection between the truth that humanity has been created in nothing less than the image and likeness of God and the doctrine of the incarnation of the Word becoming flesh. Professor Bruce observed, quote, it is because man in the creative order bears the image of his creator that the Son of God could become incarnate as man and in his humanity display the glory of the invisible God. In short, Christ's coming has hallowed all human flesh. Christ's coming has given humanity even greater dignity. It is Emmanuel, God with us. 
Paul continues his hymn. The son is the firstborn over all creation. Now, Arius in the fourth century and the Jehovah Witnesses today have badly misconstrued Paul's meaning here by arguing that the Son is less than divine and is simply an exalted creature. In refuting the Arian heresy, Athanasius understood the language of, quote, the firstborn of all creation as demonstrating that the Son of God is other than the whole creation and not a creature. Moreover, John Wesley, in his own age, made the meaning of this passage even more clear. The Son is the first begotten of every creature, that is, begotten before every creature, subsisting before all worlds, before all time, from all eternity. Like Wesley, we cannot neglect the preeminence of the Son of God. In other words, that Christ holds a priority, a supremacy. Yes, we can use that word today, both in terms of time and in terms of rank. Being before all things and above all things, especially when we engage in interreligious dialogue. Such conversations today, however, often fail to live up to their promise because they are often riven with egalitarian presuppositions and assumptions, demands for utter equality, the stuff of modern democracies which require that the Christian faith must construe her own witness to Jesus Christ more in line with that of the religious leaders of the other major world religions. When this is done, a leveling out occurs with the result that the qualitative difference of Jesus is never allowed to emerge. Indeed, Jesus Christ is unlike every other religious leader that ever was or that will ever be. Jesus is distinct. The Son of God is before all worlds. He is, as John Wesley wrote, from all eternity. So then, this ecumenical requirement in order to participate in inter-religious dialogue is one that the church must not and cannot satisfy, for in doing so, she would lose both her voice and the substance of her testimony, a qualitative difference. In other words, not simply a difference in degree, but one in kind will undoubtedly emerge when Christ is compared to all other major world religious leaders. And this comparison will prove to be offensive to some, and yet, for the sake of truth, that offense must remain. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is quite unlike Moses, Muhammad, Confucius, the Buddha, and Lao Tzu. As great as these religious leaders were, they were nevertheless sinners. Simply put, 
They were all a part of the problem. What's more, none of them could claim, as Jesus in fact did, before Abraham was born, I am. Only the word of God is from eternity to eternity. Furthermore, what religious leader, however exalted, however devoted their disciples may be, could ever claim, as the Apostle Paul does on behalf of the Son of God, that all things were created in him and through him, whether in heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities? The answer is none but Jesus Christ. What we learn then from Scripture, from our other source of knowledge, is that the Son of God, the Logos, has very much to do with the world, with the cosmos, with the things that have been made, though some critics of late have tried to drive him out. Indeed, we have grown so accustomed to thinking about such matters, that is, about creation and the natural order, simply through the lens of science and reason, such that we have failed to declare in important ways the Son of God's role in all of life and in the entire created order, both visible and invisible. And some in the church today, during our current predicament, our current distress, would not even blink an eye in terms of the title of a recent work on cosmology and astronomy by Lawrence Krauss entitled, The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far. The greatest story ever told so far and all you are referring to is matter and energy over time, the church knows of a greater story, one far more magnificent than Krauss has imagined. Take every fact, every detail of the processes of star and galaxy formations. Take all the matter, energy, and time of the universe and then add to them, yes, add to them, and here's a real plus, a genuine addition. In him, for him, and through him have all things been made. Yes, we in the church know of a greater story, a far greater story, one that the Apostle Paul has taught us so well. There is no greater narrative than the gospel story that the Most High, the Exalted One, the One in whom and for whom all things have been made has come to be among us and not only to be among us, but to humble himself among men and women and to descend to the very depths of Golgotha with its torture, its mocking, and its shame, and to be there in humble, sacrificial love.
He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. How then can we affirm both the truths of science and reason on the one hand, and the truth of revelation on the other hand, especially in terms of what Paul is proclaiming in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, that is, with respect to the role that Christ has played in creation. To tackle this grand issue, we will have to be methodologically appropriate. There is simply no other way. In other words, everything in its proper place, both science and the Bible, both reason and the Word of God. In other words, we must think in terms of the proper domain of knowledge under review and then be humble enough to listen and learn. Let reason have its say, but then let revelation have its say as well. And if there is ever any conflict here, the final authority, of course, is the Word of God. It is the norming norm, the normata normans. Now, the late Carl Sagan, not content with the disciplines of astronomy and physics, thought he would try his hand at philosophy, and so he opened up his famous television series, Cosmos, in the following words. The universe is all that is, all that was, all that will ever be. We have now gone far beyond scientific methodology to engage in full-blown philosophical speculation, especially in terms of what is deemed to be real, what actually is, what philosophers call the discipline of ontology. Unfortunately, other scientists, such as the late Steven Weinberg, have followed Sagan's approach one that mixes science and philosophy. Moreover, in the 21st century, Yuval Harari, an atheist Israeli professor, has argued that science is converging on an all-encompassing dogma, which says that organisms are algorithms and life is data processing. From a dataist perspective, and, and there are such things today, Harari continues, we may interpret the entire human species as simply a single data processing system with individual human beings serving as its chips. In other words, human beings are simply nodes of information caught up in the internet of everything. What's the consequence of all this, you might ask? Harari has a ready answer. Dataism thereby threatens to do to Homo sapiens what Homo sapiens has done to all other species. And what is that? It is to be treated in an utterly instrumental way. The fiction of the movie The Matrix may soon become our reality in ways we have not imagined. 
That's what happens when we remove final causes from our vision. That's what happens when we remove revelation from our view. But there is hope. When we consider how God has created us, when we think of such things as human consciousness, which still baffles most people today, Harari among them, and when we reflect upon our spiritual nature, homo spiritualis, or even our aesthetic capabilities and sensibilities, our appreciation of beauty, we know ourselves, intuitively speaking, to be something more, much more, than this reductionism of Sagan, Weinberg, and Harari could ever allow. But just how do we express that God-given more with the tools that are available? Beyond this, how can we communicate the grand Pauline truth in terms of Christ that all things have been created for him? The for him language here focuses on the purpose of things, that all created things and beings find their end or goal in Jesus Christ. No scientific textbook will ever teach us that. But in Revelation, in Scripture, our second and preeminent avenue of human knowledge, the curtain has been drawn back. The secrets of the universe and the intent of the Creator, at least in some sense, have been revealed. In Him, through Him, and for Him have all things been made. Christology, then, Proper doctrine concerning Christ is not only valuable in itself in helping us to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it can also point the way to a proper anthropology. In other words, it can help us appreciate who we are, which is one of the leading questions of our age. Indeed, in order to recognize all that human beings are, in their fullness as multidimensional, multivalent beings, one framework is never enough. Yes, we need scientific analyses to be sure, but we also need the truth of revelation. Scripture informs us not only that human beings have been created in the image and likeness of God, not only that the Word has become flesh and thereby honored and hallowed all of human existence, but Scripture also teaches us, and perhaps most important of all, that in Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul has reminded us, all things hold together. In the end, perhaps, we will not get our anthropology straight, our view of a human being right, until we get our Christology right. For the truths that Paul has articulated in Colossians are not only about Christ, but they are about us as well. Theology does indeed affect anthropology. We are turning Feuerbach on his head. In recovering 
the Christology of the ancient church then, in which Christ is both a redeemer and a creator, we will be prepared and empowered for all that lies ahead. Let us then be encouraged, renewed, and even emboldened in our vision as we take up the words of the Apostle Paul once more. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so, blessed, yes, blessed, be the precious and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be all power, honor, and glory, now and forevermore. And the people of God said, Amen.